This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. If we are to overcome the huge number of global challenges on our doorstep, youth education, and particularly that of First Nations people, is vital. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Hayley Maguire, the co-founder of the National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition, which is focused on asserting Indigenous rights to education. Hayley is a proud Durham Bull and South Sea Islander woman, as well as a passionate advocate for Indigenous social justice and ending education inequality, who shares more of her story now. Hayley, fantastic that you're here with us today. So look, tell me a little bit about your background, sort of where and how did you grow up and how did you become an activist? Yeah, so I grew up in Rockhampton, central Queensland. I'm a proud Durrumbull and South Sea Islander woman. I don't know if I call myself an activist, but I feel like I... What would you call yourself then? Oh my gosh, I don't even know. I guess just someone who does work. I guess, working on trying to create a better future. Yeah, it's funny um, seeing, yeah, my name attached to activists. I feel like it's a very, um, it's really a badge of honour, though, that people would uh, see me that way. I think it's a badge of honour, Ailey. I think you should own it. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess, well, the, the whole reason why... I guess I got more active was um, growing up in Rockhampton. You know, I it's kind of one of those things you don't see until you get a little bit older. But when I was 15, I started, um, I, I decided I wanted to be a teacher when I grew up. And so I actually went back to my old primary school, which I absolutely loved. But kind of being in the position of observing and being that fly on the classroom walls, I guess you could say, you do notice just how differently Aboriginal kids get treated in the classroom. And so at the time I was also coaching under under nines and just seeing the difference, you know, in kind of how they were spoken about, you know, around the school versus how they interacted with me, it kind of showed that, you know, really it's not a, a there's no like individual bad teacher or it's just that the way that our education systems have been designed they weren't catering or they weren't designed with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids in mind. So Hayley you said there I just want to explore that for a minute so you said there you, you were coaching what were you coaching by the way? Oh so I was a soccer coach. So you're coaching nine, nine-year-old boys and girls? Yeah nine-year-old boys and girls and the majority of my team at the time were Aboriginal kids and I remember I was in work experience um, at my old primary school where all these kids went to. They all went to my old primary school. And I remember my former teacher asking me, you know, oh, Hayley, how do you handle these kids? And it kind of struck me because, you know, I really loved these kids and there was nothing to handle, you know, like they, it was more so that the environment that I was able to create as a Aboriginal girl at the time was something that was more culturally safe and responsive to I guess the environment that they experienced at school you know and so that really got me passionate about education you know like education is the most powerful tool you can have in your life but if you go to school and you can't see yourself reflected 
in that experience, then it's fundamentally disempowering. Yeah, that's that's really what put me on this journey to really speak up for our rights to education. And the journey is being the coordinator and co-founder of the National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition. Now, I'm going to ask you about that. But just before I go into that, one thing that's really interesting there, I mean, you went to that school and you decided to become a teacher. So I'm taking it that you're passionate about education in any case. What was your experience at that school? It was funny because I, I never had any trouble you know, like I never had any issues going to school. I loved, I've always, I always loved going to my primary school. But like when you get a bit older and you f- reflect back on your experience, you're like, wow, I went to school in country and I never heard an acknowledgement of country when I was at school. I never, we, our history lesson started at Captain Cook discovered Australia. You know, like you start to pick up all these little things where you're like, you realize that when I, entered those classroom gates I was kind of leaving a bit of myself at home (laughs) you know and what made I realized what made my school so amazing was the fact that I got to go to school with so many of my cousins we made up 10% of my school's population just my first cousins Mm. Uh, you know so for me it was it was a time that I could spend with family but when I think back around like actually what we learned or, or how we learned you know, a lot of that wasn't actually with with me or kids like me in mind. So that brought you to where you are now. So you're the coordinator and co-founder of the National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition. So tell me about this. What's its aim and how did it come into being? Yeah, so we're a collective of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people all committed to advocating for our Indigenous rights to education. And the way it came about was... I had spent four years volunteering with a UN education initiative where I got to work with young people around the world to advocate for just education rights, you know. And what I learned through that experience was that we needed to hear more from Indigenous young people and that back in my own country, you know, we didn't have like a strong youth voice on Indigenous rights to education. So I came back and um, I held a, a national workshop where I just did the call out to see if there was any other young mob like me who were passionate about education and it turns out there was. And from that first workshop, we formed together and we've been working together for the past four or so years, just volunteering, trying to get ourselves established. And yeah, now we're working on some new campaigns. We're getting more young people involved. It's it's really happening. But it really came about because young mob have, they want to have their voice heard around education. And we want to make sure that we're improving um, Australia's education system for our future generations so that they don't have to experience being erased in the classroom. And that I guess even more broadly, if we look at the challenges that Australia is facing around climate change, um, these these huge global complex issues, you know, Indigenous knowledge is so powerful, you know, and so valuable, and that we have to look at different ways of educating young people in general to be able to meet those challenges. You're working so Indigenous young people can effectively reclaim their right to education. I mean, tell me, what about the current system isn't working and doesn't deliver, if you like, in terms of what it delivers to Indigenous young people? We so often hear about 
closing the gap and, you know, the the disproportionate rates of, you know, retention rates and grade 12 completion rates, you know, what have you. But I really love a quote that's from the Cool and Gatta Statement, and that was a international document that was designed by Indigenous education educa- uh, education experts from around the world that said, like, when we look at these statistics, you know, what what it's really saying is that they're not dropout rates, really, they're rejection rates. It's Indigenous people um, rejecting this kind of colonial ways of educating. And so when we think about what needs to change, we need to create a learning ecosystem in Australia that fundamentally acknowledges and respects the country on which we're all on, you know, and the the Indigenous knowledge systems that have cared for our continent since time immemorial. Our current education system was actually founded through colonisation. You know, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the, the role of education was around assimilation, you know. And so it was actually part of, like, the assimilation policies was educate, you know, take kids away put them into missions, take them into schools and educate them into new ways. And so that kind of legacy just doesn't go away overnight. You know, we still got a lot of work to really, what we say is reclaim our right and to create a, a national education system where it's founded on Indigenous ways of knowing and being and, and doing, you know. How would that translate into the curriculum, if you like? Is is that at the point you're at where you're looking at the, the national curriculum and thinking, okay, well, these are the things that could be different? Well, we, we kind of take what's a what's called a nation-building approach. We have hundreds of First Nations communities around the continent and um, all of those nations have a right to self-determine and, and create schools that align with their cultural values and and aspirations. And so it's really looking at how can we support young people in communities to establish, you know, their own types of independent schooling and develop their own kind of curriculum um, from their perspective. And it's more more so like a ground-up, community-driven approach that we're trying to really advocate for. Like there is space in the national curriculum for this already but like what we're what we're trying to push is really that community ownership over learning you know we've already had like so many amazing aboriginal schools but we need to encourage more to to happen so the end result for you a good result would be more independent schools that catered uh, more specifically towards an indigenous style of education is that is that is that what you'd like to see yeah, that are completely like community run and, and driven, you know, and where actually when we look at like best practice and best teaching practice and best curriculum that we have First Nations educators there as the thought leaders of that, you know, that are sharing that knowledge and that expertise on, on their terms to, you know, influence the broader mainstream system to to think about it's really it's really looking at we we just believe that we have so many strong intelligent people in our communities and that the answers really lie in our communities and so that's where you start 
And would the approach to education be different from a Western approach? I mean, what, uh, is, is, it, is it content or is it actually the approach as well? Depends on the community and the nation, but we see it as a, as a different approach and, and way of, so I guess an example you could say is like Western curriculum or Western ways of thinking really try to break down knowledge into subject areas, you know, history, science, math, English, that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, who's to say, like Indigenous ways of thinking are far more holistic, you know, and there are so many amazing First Nations educators already who who are doing this kind of holistic way of teaching. They go out on country and while you're walking on country, you're learning about science, you're learning about math, you're learning about the history and, and story of place. You know, you're building your connection to place, you know, and that's just one example from one community. There's also amazing work being done by Professor Chris Matthews with um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Maths Alliance where they're using Indigenous ways of teaching math for Indigenous and non-Indigenous young people and finding that by teaching it through an Indigenous lens that both students are having deeper conceptual understandings of core mathematical concepts. So there is a difference of way and there's a different way of understanding that is comes with teaching it through Indigenous methodologies and pedagogy. And and do you find there's an openness to it going both ways? I mean, you're there talking about the potential for communities to set up their own schools so they can, you know, pursue um, a more community-based type of teaching. Do you find the overall educational establishment open to that kind of conversation? Is is there interest in, you know, from the established uh, way of teaching in new ways of teaching? I think there is. I think that I'm far too optimistic to say no. You know what I mean? Like there's there's been so much work already to this point to try and progress this. But unless you have First Nations people at the centre and, and leading it, you always need to have that for it to be really authentic. But I think I think there is, you know, I I work on another project called Learning Creates Australia. We're currently doing a social lab to look at different ways of uh, credentialing and recognising learning. And, you know, that's that's been to bring different communities, uh, educators, policymakers all together. Um, and through that experience, there's been just a general acceptance of self-determination of First Nations people across the board. So I think I think there is, but like I said, I feel like what we really need to do is establish a safe place where First Nations people can just be First Nations, you know, and success is success as First Nations, and then and and then those kinds of strong two way communications and sharing can happen because it's not from a position of you know just taking. But it, it's from a, a strengths-based. So one of the things about the National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition is I know that you've got a strong workshop background. I mean, you said that you started off with an initial workshop, and I know that you regularly, um, maybe prior to this year, because it's been the COVID year, run workshops. What, what's your learning from the most recent set of workshops that you've done on your direction and on the future of education? We did a series of workshops last year called The Education of Our Own Design, and it was really 
to do just that, provide a, a space for young mob to come together to reimagine and rethink what education could look like if, if we were in that position of self-determination and power. And those workshops were really incredible. It just showed that we have so many kind of shared experiences, you know, regardless of where we go to school. We also had young people who'd gone through schooling at Aboriginal independent schools and just how much strength and identity and culture they they got from those experiences. But really what we got from that was that young people were calling for like different ways of measuring and valuing our success, you know, like so much of our success is defined as being on parity with non-Indigenous students, whereas that doesn't acknowledge the history and the experiences of and starting place of First Nations young people. And so coming up with our own metrics of success and, you know, wanting to see more culture and, and more of themselves reflected back at them in the classroom was essential. Valuing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educator workforce as well as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander like education assistant workforce it got really excited, like even just thinking about the physical, physical spaces, you know. We had people draw and design what would their First Nations school even look like and, you know, buildings that were resembled their totems and, you know, had cultural spaces. It was just a really cool kind of experience really to be able to, to do that kind of thinking. You sound really passionate and lit up when you talk about it. So I know, you know, you are an activist, you are a, a really a, a leader in this area. What do you think about your style of leadership and what's been effective for you so far in terms of your career? My kind of style, I guess, is I probably prefer to play more of a supportive, bringing people together type role. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I don't know what kind of, if there's a, if there's a word for that. An enabling leader? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll take that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind of just thrive of being able to bring, I feel like I, I'm really good at, you know, identifying the skills and strengths in other people and being able to match that together as a team to really work together on collective kinds of projects. And, yeah, I kind of prefer to be more collective and and sharing and kind of the approach to decision making and 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 building things together with other people so yeah I've been really lucky that I've had really incredible um, indigenous and non-indigenous mentors support me and guide me I guess in my personal journey but also using those that expertise as like a personal board when it comes to building the coalition and and guiding the way forward for the coalition and so it's like being able to be really humble and and asking for advice has been critical to (laughs) being able to start the coalition. We're talking here about the different approaches to education between sort of Western establishment and um, Indigenous thinking. Can the same be said of leadership? Is there a different approach to it within Indigenous communities? Well for me and my experience with building the the coalition with my co-founders is at the at the heart of you know all our action has been thinking about our intergenerational legacy and you know intergenerational leadership you know that we all have a responsibility to our child seven generations from now you know our actions are are for that person 
So it's really this kind of long-term strategic thinking around what can we do to make sure that that person seven generations from now inherits an education system where they see themselves, where they're strong in culture, where they speak their language, where they know their history. That's that's really what motivates all of us. And so when you have that long-term vision, that long-term thinking and sense of responsibility, you know, we've all volunteered for the coalition for four years. You know, it's, it runs like a really deep, commitment. And when I speak to First Nations leaders that I really admire and respect, they share those same similar perspectives of really intergenerational thinking and intergenerational leadership. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying. It has been a very challenging year. And I, I'll be interested to see, did, did you run workshop in 2020? No, we, <laughs> 2020 was just a uh, a year of, you know what, let's just get through it. What we did instead was, oh, we focused on some of the more boring organisational planning stuff, but we actually have been working on creating a campaign for next year to launch called Learn Our Truth. And so the focus of this campaign is all around encouraging school leaders, communities and students to prioritise and and value um, First Nations history in the classroom. So there's a fantastic film out at the moment called In My Blood It Runs and they've partnered with us on, the film has partnered with us on this campaign because there's a scene in the film where um, you see this young boy called Duan and the film really centres around him and his experience between Western education and his more traditional education from his family. But his history lessons starting off with, you know, learning about, Captain Cook discovering Australia and that kind of narrative and just how how it made him feel, you know, hearing that kind of story that really erased the place of First Nations people in our national story, really. And so together with that film and with another organisation called B, we're going to be launching a campaign next year that's all about working at the, the grassroots level to make sure that what we have in the curriculum around First Nations history is prioritised by educators and, and school leaders. So that's been a full year of just getting things ready for that. Yeah, it has been that kind of year. And did 2020 also throw up any particular personal challenges for you? Yeah, I mean, I had really great timing. Um, I decided to move to Melbourne two weeks before lockdown. So I've yeah, moved to a new city and then ended up being in a, about six, seven months of, of lockdown and um, doing all my work remotely from my home. So it's been interesting. It's been interesting adapting to that and having my young four-year-old daughter at home as well. I think a lot of families went through through that same experience here in Victoria. But actually, it was also, I guess, a blessing in disguise in some ways because I got to spend more time with my daughter this year than previous years and you get to think differently when you don't have to constantly travel and think about the next, in you know, getting to this next meeting that could be in this other city. You know, it was, it was kind of, um, even though it was hard, it was nice to think of the benefits as well. And, you know, Hayley, I never asked you, did you qualify as a teacher in the end? No, I accident. I actually, um, 
I didn't finish my teaching degree. I ended up finishing with a degree in um, management and community development and and policy. So it's still on the cards to to go back and finish maybe an MTeach or when I'm ready to go back into schools and actually be a teacher. But for now, I'm I'm happy being in the policy space and and working with young people as well. Fantastic! I bet you'd make an excellent teacher, Haley. <laughs> Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was produced by Lisa Gebelagin. If you enjoyed listening, then make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating. And for more from Women's Agenda, visit womensagenda.com.au. And I'll see you next time. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.